I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, we're going to be talking a lot about sexual violence in this series. There's also some language. If either of those things are upsetting for you, please take care while you're listening. I am Kim Masters. I am editor-at-large of The Hollywood Reporter and host of KCRW's The Business. And a veteran investigative yes. reporter in we, the no, industry. Synonym for not young. <laughs> <laughs> she hates it when I call her I, veteran. He, he does that to annoy me, but yes. <laughs> Kim Masters has been reporting on Hollywood since the 90s, which means she's also been reporting on Harvey Weinstein since the 90s. I mean, the last time I saw him face to face was the reception for Lion. In November 2016, she was at a reception with Weinstein. The film Lion, starring Dev Patel and Nicole Kidman, had just premiered, and it was the Weinstein Company's Oscar contender. And there was a thing at the Four Seasons in Beverly Hills. It was on like a Sunday afternoon, I decided to go. But I also decided, if I happen to see Harvey, there cannot be small talk, because we were definitely thinking about how can we get at this story. This story being rumors that Weinstein sexually harassed or assaulted women. The actress Rose McGowan had recently tweeted about her own sexual assault. Tweets lots of people assumed were about Weinstein. Several journalists and outlets were circling these allegations, including Kim Masters at The Hollywood Reporter. I felt like I cannot stand at a Sunday afternoon reception and chit-chat like everything is fine. So I'm not going to approach him. I'm going to stay on my side of this courtyard. So sure enough, he walks in and he makes a beeline for me. And uh, he just starts right in. Kim says Weinstein walked up to her and started schmoozing. He talked about his philanthropy, some of his political work. And I'm just really awkwardly standing there thinking, like, I'm not, I don't want to engage. Like, I really do not wish to engage. And then, as fate would have it, Nicole Kidman shows up. At the time, Kidman was getting a lot of Oscar buzz for Lion. She comes running over, she throws her arms around him, and she's like, Harvey, Harvey! And he says, uh, this is Kim Masters. She's been trying to get me for years. And I said, yes, I still am. This is the Catch and Kill podcast. I'm Ronan Farrow. Harvey Weinstein's criminal trial started a few days ago in New York City. He faces five sexual misconduct charges, including two counts of predatory sexual assault and first-degree rape. He's pleaded not guilty and has denied all allegations of non-consensual sex. Prosecutors in Los Angeles also just announced separate charges, including forcible rape and sexual battery by restraint. The allegations were finally made public in October 2017. But whispers of Weinstein's alleged abuse go back literally for decades. So does the reporting on it. Today, we're going to look at the small but dogged community of journalists who spend years trying to break this open. Like Kim, chasing the story in L.A., and Ken Oletta, who was separately closing in in New York. And he stood up from his chair and he said, Ken, 
This was a consensual affair. You're going to ruin my marriage. You're going to destroy my three young daughters' lives. And he stood over me, shaking, fist clenched. So when I stood up at that moment, thinking actually we were going to get into a, a fist fight, he broke down and started to cry. You know, I, I wondered, was that the bully crying or was it so fearful that finally he was going to be exposed? Kim's and Ken's stories taken together represent a decades-long cross-country hunt for the hardest truth in Hollywood, to catch what Kim's editor at The Hollywood Reporter once called the white whale. The two names I heard that he had assaulted were Gwyneth Paltrow and Rosanna Arquette. For much of the 90s, Kim Masters was a reporter on the move. She wrote for trade magazines, The Washington Post, Premier. She covered all sorts of beats, including the Supreme Court. I had been in Washington. I had covered the Hill. I covered at one point the SEC. I mean, I covered difficult beats, but Hollywood is probably the hardest beat to really get inside. People trade on their reputations. There's a lot of money at stake. It was hard to get people to talk. It was around 1996 when Kim moved back to L.A. to cover the film industry. And one day in the late 90s, she got a tip about Weinstein. There was a a woman director who had made it her business. She wanted to expose this really passionately. At the time, Kim was writing about Weinstein and his company, Miramax, a fair amount. This was the era of sex lies and videotape and pulp fiction. She wrote about how some people felt Miramax had essentially bought the Best Picture Oscar for Shakespeare in Love by spending so much money on advertising. Weinstein was widely considered a powerhouse and still on the rise. To write about Harvey was to make Harvey mad. And I don't remember what story made him mad, but at that point, his PR guy, Matthew Hiltzik. Matthew Hiltzik is a publicist with a lot of prominent clients in Hollywood and Washington. He reached out to me in 2017 after Weinstein asked him to suss out what I was up to in my reporting. He was doing similar work in the 90s when he got in touch with Kim. Matthew Hiltzik set up a lunch. And I hadn't met him face-to-face at all. So I go to the peninsula, and there's Matthew Hiltzik and another publicist. And we're sitting there on the terrace out there at the peninsula chatting, and all of a sudden, Harvey comes running onto this thing, <laughs> screaming like a madman, uh, why do you write this shit about me? Why do you write this shit? Why do you say I'm a bully? Which was funny <laughs> in the moment. <laughs> the irony just, just right over like, his head. I don't know why, Harvey. I'm just not. And then he said, what have you heard about me? Kim then faced a choice. Should she confront Weinstein about the rumors? And I thought, all right, like, this is the moment. Like, this is it. I got to do this now or do it never. So I said, I've heard you rape women. Matt Hilsick and the other publicist, I thought were going to go over backwards in their chairs. I mean, it was a stunning moment. Kim says Weinstein didn't seem shocked by the claim. In fact, what he said next seemed anything but shocked. Sometimes you have sex with a woman who's not your wife, and afterwards she wants to say it wasn't consensual and you have to write a check. Which sounded like yes, right? I mean, I'm sure there was another part of him thinking, holy shit, I can't believe she just asked me that question. And what was going through your mind as he said this? I was just thinking, like, today I am a woman. (laughs) I just was like, you know, I did the thing. I mean, it would have been very easy not to say that, right? But I felt like I have to. I just have to. It's this journalistic imperative to say, I know this, and I'm going to ask you the question. 
Matthew Hiltzik says he remembers Kim confronting Weinstein, but doesn't recall the word rape ever being used. Years later, Weinstein would tell Frontline that he didn't seem shocked by Kim's claim because he'd heard it before. After that off-the-record lunch, Kim felt more sure that the allegations were true. But still, she didn't have anyone on the record. She didn't have enough to publish. We really wanted to get at it, but it was like trying to grab, like, smoke, you know, because you're not going to be able to call up Gwyneth Paltrow and say, were you assaulted by Harvey Weinstein, given who Harvey was at that time? You know, this this still rising mogul uh, who could basically say, would you like an Oscar or would you like to litigate until I destroy you? It felt like a complete hopeless, hopeless thing. I feel like the people in New York got farther than the people in L.A. because it's a New York company, really. And so there would be more floating around in the water. You know, like I think Ken Aletta got some stuff maybe that we didn't have. Well, I profiled him for The New Yorker in 2002. And, you know, you talk to lots of people. Ken Oletta has covered the media for The New Yorker since 1993. Over the course of his career, he's profiled a lot of elite power players. Everyone from Michael Eisner at Disney to Roy Cohn, Nixon's advisor and a mentor to a young Donald Trump. In mid-2002, Ken pitched the profile on Weinstein to The New Yorker's editor-in-chief, David Remnick. And Remnick agreed. Weinstein would be a good subject. He had had a hand in the election of Mayor Bloomberg in 2001. He had a big hand in Hillary's election as senator in 2000. Mm -hmm. He was involved in Gore. He was invited to Camp David by Clinton. I mean, he'd been a, he was a factor. And I reached out. I I don't know whether I talked to Harvey at first. I probably talked to Matthew Hilsick, who was then his Mm -hmm. public relations guy. And they came back, as I remember, we're not going to cooperate. I said, okay, I'll do it anyway. Ken made it clear he was going to do the piece regardless. He'd be talking with all sorts of people with sensitive knowledge about Weinstein. If Weinstein wanted to have any input, his best option was to talk. You say, I don't want to just talk to your enemies and adversaries. I want to talk to you. I want to understand you. That's my job. I really want to spend time with you. You know, it's a four or five month process. Ken wanted to write the most comprehensive piece ever published about Weinstein. That's what he was trying to get Weinstein and Hiltzik to understand. That often works with people. It worked with Roy Cohn. And at that point, they succumbed and said, they'll cooperate. And he cooperated. He opened himself up generously. What was his reputation at the time when you started digging into this? Well, people were afraid of him. Harvey instilled enormous fear. They thought he could affect their career. He could destroy their career. He could, and he often did, call people who wanted to leave his employ and tell people, don't hire this person, and you badmouth them, and you know. I mean, I had, you know, any number of people who say, I'll talk, but you can't quote me. And what was that about? It was fear. Ken had heard this one story about the director, Julie Tamor. It happened in 2002 at a test screening for Tamor's film, Frida, which Miramax had signed on to distribute. Tamor and Weinstein got into a fight, and he threatened to tank the film, and then to quote, beat the shit out of Elliot Goldenthal, the film's composer and Tamor's partner, who was standing nearby. Weinstein later admitted he was not, quote, remotely hospitable, but said he wasn't physically menacing. That story, as far as Ken could tell, was par for the course. Every time you confronted him about 
a near fist fight he had, putting a reporter in a in a headlock, uh, threatening Graydon Carter, the editor of Vanity Fair, throwing an ashtray at the wall behind Donna Gelati, right? Isn't yeah, that in your profile? A, a marble ashtray. I mean, one really like five pound ashtray. Every time I would confront him, he said. I know I'm, I go to excess. I know I have a hot temper. I'm reformed. I'm, I'm a different man. I'm changed. And then you began to hear about these allegations. Well, what you do is, is as you get to know people and talk to them more than once, you become more intimate with them and they feel they relax a little bit. And then you say, what am I missing? Who else should I talk to? Or I hear that Harvey boasts about the women actresses he sleeps with. Tell me about that. And as you get to know people, they feel comfortable enough to share some secrets with you. Have you heard about this woman, that woman? And then someone says, well, you know, Steve Utensky suddenly disappeared for a month to go to London, who was Harvey's lawyer in Miramax. You just try to put the pieces together like a detective would. The two women I had, I came closest to exposing Harvey's behavior towards Zelda Perkins, who's mm-hmm. assistant, his assistant in London, and Rowena Chu. Rowena Chu, the former assistant, says that in 1998, at the Venice Film Festival, Weinstein assaulted her in his hotel room. Shortly thereafter, she and her boss, Zelda Perkins, left Miramax. I talked to Rowena for an earlier episode of this show. But in 2002, when Ken was first hearing whispers of this incident, even people in the company didn't know what had happened. No one was talking. And I even tracked down Zelda, who was living in Guatemala. She wouldn't talk. The person who told me about her wouldn't talk. I mean, I, I remember I went to the court system in New York and England and France, and I could find nothing in the court system. And I'm saying, why? And then I realized what he did. What he did was, as soon as you made an accusation, Rowena Chu and Zelda Perkins make the accusation in 98, Harvey flies over his lawyer, hires a law firm in London, they reach an agreement. If he's willing to pay money right up front, which he, Harvey was, I'll pay you. You sign this non-disclosure agreement. You don't get a copy of it. It, it's, it stays in my lawyer's office. It never gets to the court. It's a private document. It's not a public document. And I realized that's what he did, and that's why you couldn't get it out. So we didn't have anyone on the record. But I knew he, was, he had done these things, but I just couldn't prove it. As he was wrapping up his profile, Ken raised the allegations with Weinstein. I confronted him, just the two of us, and I said, Harvey, tell me about Rowena and, and Zelda Perkins and your attempted rape at the Venice Film Festival in 98 of Rowena. And that's how Ken found himself in that strange scene with Weinstein seemingly on the verge of a fist fight and then in tears. New Yorker deadline, we go to bed Thursday nights. On Tuesday, Harvey thinks we're going to run what he's done with particularly Zelda Perkins and Rowena Chu. And he comes to the New Yorker, asks for a meeting with me and Remnick and our attorney at the time. And he comes up with David Boyce. 
David Boies is a high-profile attorney who represented Weinstein for years. And Harvey starts screaming. We're sitting across from each other in the New Yorker conference room in the old New Yorker building on 42nd Street. And he starts screaming, I'm going to stop you from publishing. And David Boies, to his credit, taps him on the arm and said, Harvey, there's a First Amendment in this country. You can't do that. Then I leaned forward and I said, Harvey, here's what we need, and we need it tomorrow. I need to see how you paid these two non-disclosure agreements for Zelda and for Rowena. I need to see it tomorrow. Harvey, I need to see it tomorrow. Chris, I'm thinking if I could show that either the corporate parent Disney paid for the non-disclosure or Miramax itself paid, someone's going to jail and I could write the whole story. I didn't need the women to talk to me because I had it then. And I, I really, I thought maybe we would have the goods. So the next day he comes with Bob Weinstein. Bob Weinstein is Harvey's brother and the co-founder of Miramax. And they slide across the table two cancel checks from Bob Weinstein. They're personal checks. When I confront the guy and he says they're consensual affairs, I paid for silence to protect my marriage. I can't prove otherwise. Ken found himself in the exact same position Kim had been in when she was writing about Weinstein in the 90s. He knew there were stories of assault, but he couldn't prove it. Then David Remnick and I huddled, and David said to me something I I remember explicitly. He said, Ken, when I was at the Washington Post, I didn't do the story, but we did a front-page story on the senator and, and accusing him of sexual harassment. We had 11 women by name on the record saying he had harassed them, he had abused them sexually in some way. We have none. He said, I don't see how we could run this. And I agreed with him. And I still agree with him. I think it was the right decision. We have the National Enquirer. Journalism has to prove things. We couldn't prove it. The profile published on December 16th, 2002. Looking back on it, there's this one passage that really stands out. It's about how Weinstein took whatever means necessary to get what he wanted. I asked Ken to read it. Weinstein doesn't want to share the costs of the movie or trade half an interest in a Miramax film. Instead, his partners, this studio head said, feel raped, a word often invoked by those dealing with him. You couldn't get the allegations of sexual abuse reportable. But you did include the word rape there. Right. Talk about that decision. People didn't know that Harvey was a sexual predator. Right, so, so they didn't they, interpret it. They sincerely took it at they, face value. They took think? it that he verbally rapes people and threatens them with physical harm, mm-hmm. and, and, but they didn't take it literally. Other than that one veiled word, the profile made no mention of sexual misconduct. After the break, you said to me, can I call you on a secure phone? I said, what? I was really, what is that all about?
I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. And I want to tell you about a podcast I think you're going to love. Who Weekly is a podcast about everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Does celebrity news stress you out? Are there too many people you've literally never heard of? Check out Who Weekly, a podcast hosted by Lindsay Weber and me, Bobby Finger. Each episode goes deep into the biggest Who Liberty stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we'll answer the most burning listener queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly on the Odyssey app or wherever else you get your podcasts. Oh, my God, his party at the Beverly Hilton and at, at, at uh, Trader Vic's was routinely shut down by the fire marshal. Welcome back. It was around 2007, and Kim Masters was still occasionally writing about Weinstein. She was also still bumping into him at awards shows and parties, including the Golden Globes party he threw. Even stars would be standing outside the rope trying to get in. The degree to which he was... The king, the glamour around him, it was surreal. I remember going to that party. (laughs) So I'm just going to tell this story, even though you're never going to use it, but it's funny. Hey, Kim, we're going to use it. I took my niece, who was very, very pretty 12-year-old at the time. And uh, this is Harvey, though. It's Harvey working his Harveyness. I walk into the tent of this big A-list party after the Globes. And without a second's hesitation, Harvey walks up to my niece, not talking to me, talking to this very pretty little blonde girl. Would you like to meet Orlando Bloom and Johnny Depp? And she (laughs) just kind of looks at him like this cobra came out of the basket and nods her head. And they disappear into the crowd before I can. And and I yell after him, I'm not doing you any favors for this. (laughs) This is is your thing, bruh. The way Kim tells it, she was always getting into scrapes with Weinstein over how she wrote about the films he distributed. She wrote about production issues on the set of Gangs of New York. That was a fight. We had a big tangle over Inglorious Bastards because that is my father's actual... My father was a Viennese Jew who became a British commando. And the actual guys who were Jews and became commandos were very offended by Inglorious Bastards. They were highly trained elite troops. They were not guys with baseball bats. Inglorious Bastards was released in 2009, at a time when the Weinstein Company, Kim says, was not doing so well and really needed a hit. I wrote about this for the Daily Beast, my father, the Inglorious Bastard. And so Harvey threatened to sue me. And so he's trying to simultaneously threaten me with a lawsuit for writing about this movie and tell me how much he respects my father's story. Now, the truth is, my father wrote a memoir and Harvey optioned it. I was not involved at all. I made a huge point not to be involved. He never paid my father. <laughs> oh, he was famous for that. <laughs> and he said he to me people. once in a meeting when we were talking about, he says, all these people say I don't pay them. Who are these people? Where are these people? And it was all I could do not to say my father, my 83-year-old father, you son of a bitch. But I didn't because obviously I didn't want the door opened to Harvey then would have said, uh, you know, I'll write you a check right now. And there was not, nobody's writing me a check. And still, all the while, Kim was hoping some tip would come through that would break the much bigger story when it came to Weinstein. How many years do you think you circled long, this story for? Long, I mean, intermittently. I don't want to make you think I'm just constantly, every week, like, let me do a Harvey check-in. You know, every once in a while, I'd be like, oh, this guy just left Miramax. Let's call him. I, like, I knew an executive who had been a source who went to work for the Weinsteins, and then after a period of time was no longer working for the Weinsteins. So the minute he's out... I call and I say, so what do you know about Harvey and these allegations? And he said, it's true. It's completely true. 
And I'm like, give me a name. He would tell me there were settlements. There were definitely settlements. And I'm like, with whom? He would always say, I don't know. It really did feel like the ungettable story. Back in New York, Ken Oletta was also still looking for openings to crack the case of Weinstein and his settlements. Harvey didn't like me, and we had no real relationship after the profile. It's fine. I, I didn't really care. In 2015, Ken saw another opportunity when a Filipina-Italian model named Ambra Gutierrez went to the police and told them Weinstein had assaulted her in his office. The police had brought Harvey in for questioning, but the district attorney, Cyrus Vance Jr., had declined to press charges. The story had been all over the tabloids. So I called up Harvey. I said, Harvey, I need to talk to you about Amber. And he got on the phone, and he said, I can't talk to you because I'm under instructions from DA Vance not to talk about the case to the press. Would you meet with my people? Ken had a meeting with two of Weinstein's lawyers and Jules Kroll, the head of the private security firm hired to handle the Gutierrez situation. And they showed me some testimony from the Berlusconi trial and showed me some other material, which questioned her credibility as, as a witness. Then I had really reasonably good sources in the, in the police department. And the police department saying, we believe this woman, that she's got the goods on Harvey. I said, can I get the tape? Can't, can't do that. So I couldn't get the tape. Then Vance decides not to prosecute the case. I'm dead. The story is dead. Every once in a while, you just give it a swing. You know, when Janice Min was running The Hollywood Reporter, we thought we were going to break the story. Rose McGowan was going to go public. This was after McGowan's 2016 tweets that called out an unnamed studio head and accused him of rape. And I went to my editor and said, we can connect the dots here. There's only one person this could be. The rapist is Harvey. We can do this. And our lawyers were definitely not going to do it. Uh, so, you know, it was another, like, ah. <laughs> there just kept being this moment where you thought, is it now? But it began to feel quite hopeless, to be honest. I think I describe you in the book as being like a, a homicide beat cop kept up at night by the case that got away. Did the Harvey Weinstein story keep you up at night over the years? Yeah, I, I, I often thought about how I couldn't solve the case, how I couldn't expose his sexual predation. You think about, is he doing this to other women over the years? And if you could expose it, maybe he couldn't do it. So yeah, I, I just, yeah, I thought about it a lot. By the spring of 2017, I was in the thick of my own Weinstein reporting at NBC News. I was also starting to sense resistance within the network to airing the story. And so I started reaching out to the journalists I'd heard had gone at this the hardest. So what did you think when I called you? I remembered seeing you on your show, and I thought, is this guy really like a real reporter? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Kim. I wasn't so sure you were going to get there, to be honest, for obvious reasons. Uh, not Neither was I. Nothing to do with you. <laughs> I remember when you said to me, I'm doing this for NBC. The first time I talked to you, I thought, are you? Because <laughs> <laughs> I knew they had done some stuff, like they had interviewed me about Scientology, and none of that ever happened. I felt like, eh, these guys don't really have the stomach for this sort of thing. Kim knew Hollywood, and she wondered if leadership at the network might be conflicted. The whole weird thing to me of having Noah 
Moonlight is very strange to me. Do you know he wrote Jackie? Noah Oppenheim is the president of NBC News and a screenwriter. And Jackie is, well, you know Jackie. And tell General de Gaulle that if he wishes to ride in an armored car or in a tank for that matter, I won't blame him. Why are you doing this, Mrs. Kennedy? I'm just doing my job. Despite some skepticism, Kim agreed to talk to me. You were incredibly generous right off the bat. Thank just you. I just was told so... told me the anecdotes you had, the rumors you had heard. Yeah. And, you know, at that point started calling me unsolicited when you would hear things about how the story was involving. Well, and you were like, where do I meet someone by Silver Lake if I don't want anyone to recognize? I'm like, right. I was also, <laughs> after we started speaking, calling you for just L.A. reporting advice because I hadn't really done a big story that was L.A. based before. Yeah, you got to have your little hidey holes. At the same time, I was reaching out to Ken Oletta. He encouraged me, told me I was on the right track. Eventually, he even said he'd saved all his notes from his 2002 reporting and kept them in a private archive in the New York Public Library. Box after box of notes and transcripts and tapes. He told me I could look at all of it. My wife calls me anal because I don't throw anything out. It was a moment where I was reminded of the importance of our profession. I was discovering uncanny synergy between what I had been investigating and what you had found. So I had this other separate sourcing that separately corroborated something that had been sitting there in that notebook that you kept so precisely for 17 years or whatever it was. I mean, that is... That is a testament to the power of of journalism that separated by all that time and space, you had independently come to these same conclusions. You had, you know, three women on the record. Uh, You had five women, not by name, but who were certified that he had abused. And you had the audio tape from 2015. I I mean, my heart was racing. I said, oh, my God, Ronan's got it. He's got the story. I get goosebumps as I, as I think about it now. I mean, it was thrilling. Ken agreed to a filmed interview for my NBC story. We talked about his reporting from the early 2000s and what he'd uncovered. And you said to me, uh, I meet with Noah Oppenheim the first week in August for a decision. Oppenheim and the network were about to make a decision as to whether or not to run this story. At the end of the taping, while we were wrapping up, Ken had one more thing he wanted to say. If you want me to say that on camera? I'm, I'm rolling, so... Yeah, I think we should. Yeah. And I said, would you put the camera back on? And, and I looked into the camera and I said, if NBC doesn't run your story... If, you, if NBC, which has the evidence, doesn't go forward with, with this story... It's a scandal. It's a scandal for NBC. It's a black eye for NBC. And you'll be embarrassed. And it will get out. And people will say... You, had, you did all this reporting, you have all this evidence on a sexual predator, and you didn't publish it because your lawyer said you shouldn't publish it. Who runs the news division? We now know that Weinstein was placing private calls to top brass at NBC as the reporting was closing in on him. And those weren't the only people he was reaching out to. Here it is. The date is June 29th, 2017, from Harvey Weinstein, big letters on the top. Out in Hollywood, Kim Masters had gotten an email. Dear Kim, as you may or may not know, we have a publishing arm of the company, and I have an idea for a fun Michael Corda kind of biography. Are you available to discuss today? 
All my best, Harvey. When the note came in, Kim was in the middle of texting with her former editor at The Hollywood Reporter, Janice Min. So we're chatting about whatever by text, me and Janice Min. (laughs) And then I say, shit, (laughs) Harvey W. is calling me. Why did I answer the fucking phone? (laughs) Kill me. (laughs) Excuse my language. We're very classy. (laughs) She says, what did he want? Three question marks. I say, to offer me a book deal. And she says, I mean, is it a lot of money? (laughs) (laughs) Ha ha. (laughs) Ha ha. I say, obviously, I did not ask. (laughs) So there you have it, documentary proof. But I did answer the phone. And he said, I wanted to talk to you. And I said, Harvey, we're not doing this. We're not having this conversation. And he's like, but, but, but. And I'm like, not going to happen. Goodbye. We're not. No. At the same time I was working to break the Weinstein story that summer, Kim was trying to publish a piece on Roy Price, the then head of Amazon's film and TV division. She was digging into allegations that Price had sexually harassed the executive producer of Amazon's The Man in the High Castle. Then Price's lawyers, some of the same lawyers who represented Weinstein, started issuing threats. I think you know Lisa Bloom and Charles Harder had more than one publication petrified to publish the story. The story got killed, first at Kim's longtime outlet, The Hollywood Reporter, and then at The Daily Beast. It was a remarkable parallel to what was happening with me. That August, Noah Oppenheim told me NBC News was killing my reporting on Weinstein. I kept fighting to get it on air for weeks afterwards, but I also called Ken Oletta, I didn't know who else to turn to. You said to me, can I call you on a secure phone? I said, what? I was really, what is that all about? And you said to me that Noah Oppenheim, that NBC and he had rejected your work. Uh, I was free to take it anywhere I wanted, but who would take it? You know, I mean, I I just, you were so frustrated. I, I mean, I just couldn't believe it. I mean, these are fellow journalists. How could they have killed that story? I said, give me a number I can call you. And I called Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker, and I said, David, I'll never forget the word I use. I said, Ronan Farrow has broken the code. He's got the goods on Harvey Weinstein. And NBC has rejected it. And I said, he's authentic. He's really done this very carefully as a reporter. And I think it's unbelievable. It was a Thursday, I remember, because it was deadline day at the New Yorker. He said, have Ronan call me on Monday at this number. I called Remnick, we met, and he agreed that the reporting was newsworthy. Ultimately, he decided to dig in and get it in shape for the New Yorker to publish. In the days leading up to publication, Kim Masters was watching closely. And to the very last minute, doubting it would ever see the light of day. You just always feel I'm going to believe this when I see it. I want to see it in print, and then I'll believe it. Eventually, she started to believe it and published a story saying it was coming. I don't even remember how I knew it was going to run, but I knew. You know everybody, so obviously you find out (laughs) because you always find find out my stories are about to run. That that has happened. Kim is always (laughs) scooping the fact that I'm about to drop a story. Not always, but a couple times. At 10.47 a.m. on October 10th, we hit publish. 
I can't even tell you, it was like a bomb went off in our offices. It was unanticipatable, if that's a word. I, I could never, ever have imagined what would happen in the aftermath. Our phones blew up, and we were just getting calls and tips, and we created a confidential tip line like many other people did. And I had my hands, we were just in the councils of war. What is gettable? What should be a priority? We're in doing like a MASH unit trying to do triage. The story was out, and now Kim, who had been thinking about this for years, could finally talk about what she knew. We had TV crews coming in and going, rotating through the office to talk about Harvey. And do the allegations fit with the allegations that you've been hearing? Honestly, I heard worse, uh, and uh, that may yet be revealed. This is why he offered me the book deal, to prevent me from doing exactly what I did, which was to go on television literally around the world. I was on TV in Australia, in Asia, in France, in Germany, and Britain. And, and there's one British Channel 4, they actually used this footage where I'm sitting in the chair doing the interview, and I look at my phone and I jump up and go, I got to go right now, and I don't even remember which story it was, but we were breaking stories like this. You just opened the doors between The New York Times and The New Yorker to a revolution, as you know. And in terms of my life, the last two years were almost a full time, time's up, beat for me with big consequences, not as big as I want them to be. Remember that story Kim was working on about the Amazon executive Roy Price? At that point, she'd only managed to publish part of it on a website called The Information. After the Weinstein story, The Hollywood Reporter agreed to run the reporting in full after all. Price also lost his job at Amazon. And Kim went on to break other stories about Hollywood executives, including John Lasseter at Disney and Kevin Sujihara at Warner Brothers. Ken Oletta felt a change, too. Many people in the Hollywood community knew that, which has now been exposed. He's back on the beat that frustrated him for so many years. I'm doing a biography of Harvey Weinstein his whole life. I'm going to cover the trial. Harvey is, has an ankle bracelet. He's allowed to be in only two states, New York and Connecticut. He's divorced. He's not in great health. He is, to many people, and I'm sure it causes great pain for him, a curse word. So that's a total change. I mean, when I was profiling Harvey, he was on top of the world in 2002. People feared him and respected him. And he had the ability to make movies and hire, eventually, Obama's daughter for an internship. To write about Harvey is to write about power. He had it. He had a lot of power. And he doesn't today. Of course, all this change, it's only gone so far. Have all the enablers been exposed? No. And will they ever be? Probably not. And having reported both in previous years and decades... That sounded... Stop it, Ronan. <laughs> that sounded like I was really yeah. leaning into it. Having many re- decades. <laughs> so many. Honestly, <laughs> for centuries. Like I was a baby in diapers <laughs> when you were at the peninsula with Harvey Weinstein, <laughs> which is probably literally true. Oh, boy. I uh, really put my foot into it there. But have, having reported on this in previous years and reporting on it now in the present day, how much has changed and how much hasn't in terms of journalism's willingness to go up against powerful interests. The world absolutely changed in the aftermath of the Harvey story. In terms of my experience breaking stories, the intent to publish is just much more clear. The idea that this is our job. It's been amazing, the night and day difference. Everything changed, everything changed.
The Catch and Kill podcast is a production of Pineapple Street Studios and me, Ronan Farrow. It's produced by Sophie Bridges, Sharina Ong, Janelle Pfeiffer, and Unjin Lee. Our senior producer is Eric Menel. Editing by Joel Lovell and Max Linsky. Pineapple's executive producers are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky. Production support from Maddie Sprung-Kaiser, Emily Becker, and Barry Finkel. Fact-checking by Sean Lavery. Music in the episode from Blue Dot Sessions, First Calm, and Marmoset. Special thanks this week to Reed Black and Vinegar Hill Sound in Brooklyn. Next week, as the Weinstein trial progresses, prosecutors will be trying to establish patterns in his behavior. We look at one of Weinstein's patterns, his promises of fame and fortune. He starts saying, oh, I know this uh, great attorney, and, you know, I could set you up with her. You could talk to her about her career path. And later it turned into, you could be my girlfriend. You could be my assistant in London and be my girlfriend there. And the ways in which those promises often turned out to be traps. Oh, I knew as soon as I went down that elevator. It was just like I I knew it. It's over. Like I got to the bottom floor, and I just immediately knew. I said, there's going to be retaliation. I'm fucked. I I know it. Mm. And I, I was right. This is all based on reporting I did for my book, Catch and Kill, available where you buy your books and as an audiobook. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Let me know when you're ready. Yeah, do you want to tell me about your lunch? Mm. I went to Panda Express. It was a delight. <laughs> we good? Oh, uh, what did you have? Um, I had, I actually screwed up my order because I got the chow mein uh, side as a base for my bowl um, and then thought that I was getting a third uh, main course when I ordered vegetables, but actually that is a side technically, so I paid for three mains and only got two. Oh my god. <laughs> okay. You sound great. Okay. I'm really sorry to-